Hello, everyone. Good evening and welcome. Now is the best time to find a seat and sit in it because we're going to start. My name is Kathleen McLean. I'm a programmer here at the Art Gallery of Ontario, and it's great to see so many of you here for tonight's conversation. Um, we welcome you here, acknowledging that we're gathered on Mississauga territory, on land that's been home to the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat through time. Tonight's talk, as you all know, is directly connected to the exhibition, Every Now Then, Reframing Nationhood. Uh, it opened last week, and it's already gotten tremendous reviews. I hope you've had a chance to see it. There'll be time after the talk to go see it on the fourth floor, up one level. Um, we're going to hear from tonight the uh, four artists, so Michael Belmore, Lisa Hermer, Charmaine Lurch, and Cyrus Marcus Ware. They'll be in conversation with the exhibition's two co-curators, the Frederick S. Eaton Curator of Canadian Art, Andrew Hunter, and artist, activist, and educator, Anique Jordan. Woo! I know, I think they deserve a woo, all those folks. Um, I'd like to thank exhibition supporters Ontario 150, the Canada Cultural Spaces Fund, and the Canada Council for the Arts. So, please join me in welcoming all of the speakers, all at once, to the stage, and we'll get things started. Good evening, everybody. I noticed that whenever um, people do the announcement about Anik and I as co-curators, um, everybody goes like, woo, when they say Anik's name. And uh, I don't get woos anymore. I used to get woos. Now people just feel, you know, sympathetic that at my age I'm still on stage and making coherent sentences. So um, welcome, everybody. Uh, really excited about tonight and this opportunity uh, to have a conversation with four of the many, many artists uh, that are in this exhibition that's up until December. There'll be lots of other um, moments and opportunities um, with public programs to meet other artists. Um, so excited about that. I'm just sorting out my notes here. Stop. Oh, Cyrus, those are my notes. Again, um, people could woo Cyrus for spilling my notes. That's an option. Um, so I wanted to start by just saying a few words about the show, um, if I can find my, my page. Um, and then uh, we're going to do some introductions. The artists are going to say a few words about their projects. And uh, then we're going to get into a conversation. So uh, uh, that's going to, uh, you know, we're going to talk for about an hour. There's going to be time for some questions. Uh, and then also the opportunity uh, to come up to the show for those of you who haven't seen it. Uh, to meet with the artists on stage, but there's a number of artists here as well who um, we're going to acknowledge shortly. So I'm just going to read one paragraph from my curator introduction to the publication, which is available in the gallery shop for $24.95, along with two other publications for the show. So from uh, its inception, the exhibition and publication, every now then Rethinking Nationhood, has been developed to engage critically with the idea of Canada. Uh, these two, the exhibition and publication, embrace the fundamental belief that this country remains a dynamic work in progress that has, is, and will continue to be 
defined by movements and migrations across shifting terrain and within a variable, often unstable environment. As cultural space, political state, ecosystem, and geography, the space of Canada, even over its short history, has been a place of shifting borders and boundaries, a, a place constantly being reimagined and redefined. So that kind of was a defining concept for us when Anik and I started working on this exhibition. Uh, and the result of it, as you'll see upstairs and in various locations throughout the city, um, is a complicated show that I've sort of said at, at various times is, is also, it's messy. Um, there's a lot of voices. There's a lot of voices speaking to and across each other uh, through space, through time. Um, and that was our goal. Uh, and this really, tonight, the opening of the show is the beginning of, of the conversation moving forward. So what we put on the table upstairs is not a fixed final statement. It's, it's hopefully an opening, an opening of conversation. And with that, I'll uh, hand it over to Anique. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. Everybody. Woo. Handing over to Anique. Hello, hello. 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 Is it on? No, okay, okay. Ah, wonderful. <laughs> So welcome everyone, I'm so excited to have Full House here celebrating these uh, 35 and uh, artist projects that are shown upstairs, which is looking at actually almost, I'd say about 55 different artists who are part of the show. Um, so as Andrew was saying, the show for us is really special and really important because of the range of artists across geography, across generations that are represented in the show. Um, and because of that, I want to make sure that we acknowledge artists as they are here in the room with us. So if any of the artists who are participating in the exhibition are here or any of the writers are here, if you can please stand up, we just want to give you a round of applause. Wonderful. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your critical thinking. We're really excited to have a show of all of your work together, and which says something really special about how the, the way we understand Canada. So we're going to start with uh, some of the biographies of all the artists that are on stage. And I will start with Cyrus. <laughs> so Cyrus Marcus Ware is a Vanier scholar, a visual artist, a community activist, a researcher, a youth advocate, and educator. For over 12 years, he was also the coordinator of the Art Gallery of Ontario's youth program and did some amazing work here. Cyrus is also a, co a core team member of Black Lives Matter Toronto, and as a visual artist, he works with the mediums of painting, installation, and performance to challenge systemic oppression. Cyrus's work explores the spaces between and around identities, acting as provocations to our understanding of gender, sexuality, and race. Cyrus. Uh, next, I'd like to introduce Charmaine Lurch. Uh, Charmaine Lurch is a Toronto-based interdisciplinary visual artist. Her repertoire intertwines race, science, and art in both 2D and 3D constructions. Her work on black life in North American and Caribbean societies is framed within a conversation on materiality in the context of the landscape. Welcome, Charmaine. and Lisa Hermer. Lisa Hermer is an interdisciplinary artist whose work spans social practice, visual media, community collaboration, and practice-based forms of research. Often working under the pseudonym Dodo Lab, much of her practice focuses on instigating, exploring, and responding to the public life of ideas. 
She works in a lot of non-traditional spaces to expand the context of the gallery. This is Lisa. And Michael Belmore. Uh, born and raised. Born and raised in Northern Ontario, Michael has practiced professionally as an artist since graduating from OCAD University in 1994. Michael Belmore's work and processes speak about the environment, about land, water, and what it is to be uh, Anishinaabe. So welcome, Michael. Okay, I can find my instructions. So, so go ahead. <laughs> so, go, I will. Okay. Um, so we're going to invite each of the artists uh, very briefly just to talk about the work in the exhibition. Uh, uh, what this work means in the context of this exhibition. And then, as I said, we're going to get into conversation. So we're, um, uh, oh, sorry, I included this picture. I thought I should explain before we start that the image that was used on the advertisement might seem like an odd thing. It was a stone. Um, we talk a lot in the project about time, about challenging this narrow parameters of time that Canada 150 defines. So something I wanted early on to introduce into the exhibition and really shaped my writing um, was this uh, rock that you see Anique holding here. And this is a piece of the Springwater meteorite that was found in southern Saskatchewan in 1930. And it's 4.6 billion years old. It comes from the origin of the universe, if that's how you understand the world and the universe. Um, so I thought I should explain before we proceeded why you saw that beautiful sparkly rock, which uh, from the Royal Ontario Museum, which sadly, I, I'd like to make it into a belt buckle, but they're not, <laughs> apparently they won't allow you to do that. You can handle it. So anyways, um, just for those of you, the opening of the installation, I'll just quickly scroll through if you haven't been upstairs yet of various projects, and then we're going to come to Cyrus's work, which you see in the background of this shot beyond Bonnie Devine's work. So here we are, Cyrus Ware. Hello, everybody. Um, so this work, uh, the work that's upstairs is called Baby Don't Worry, You Know That We've Got You, and that is a lyric from um, a song by The Roots, sung by, with Erica Badu. And, uh, I chose to call it that because this, this work is part of a larger series, an activist portrait series that I've been doing to try to um, document the lives of black and racialized activists and artists who are making change across this north part of Turtle Island. Um, I've been doing very, they're very large scale. So you, you saw the one with me and, and Rodney in front of a giant portrait of Rodney. They're very large scale, larger than life. Um, and I've been drawing these large-scale portraits of activists as part of, um, for me, an act of reverence, an act of celebration of, uh, of their organizing, but also of their lives, um, uh, about all of the big A and small A activisms that they've done to sort of try to make this place somewhere that is more livable for all of this, for all of us. And part of why I was drawn to portraiture was because I was, I was working here at the AGO. I was also working uh, within a university context, so working within institutions that had traditions of portraiture, of large portraits of kings and university chancellors and popes and, and other very fancy people that didn't really reflect my community and my history. So I wanted to reinscribe um, the, the, the bodies of people on the margins into an art historical context and into um, the tradition of portraiture. And I guess why that was important to me was when I was younger, uh, my father, um, who's here, uh, he had this idea that 
one day I should write a book about black Canadian art history. And he was like, this is a project you should do. I was like seven. He was like, this is a project you should do. I think it's a really great idea. I think you'd sell a lot of the copies and we really, really need something like this. And I agree that we actually still really need something like this. Um, and I did eventually become an academic, but, but sadly never did the, I'm sorry, dad, I never worked on the book. Um, but in my way, uh, these portraits are part of that. You know, they're sort of uh, documenting um, a very important part of a black art tradition that's happening right now, but also black activist uh, life in, in, in this north part of Turtle Island. So the portraits are all of um, mostly queer and trans, uh, disabled, um, you know, sort of diverse artists who experience a lot of different intersections of difference and um, who are doing different things to sort of try to address the world that they're in. I lost a couple of activist friends um, to suicide, and I know firsthand, doing direct action, how taxing this labor can be. And so um, these are sort of like love letters. So what you see upstairs are love letters to four black activists. There's a portrait of Yusra Kogali. When I was asked to be in the show, you know, she was the first person I thought of drawing. Um, because she had, you know, been in the media in such a, a terrible way, you know, anything that this woman says, anything that she tweets gets really ripped apart. And, and she had these very visceral online attacks uh, that were very directed and very personal, as if she wasn't alive, as if she wasn't a human being with feelings, as if she wasn't a, a, a person. Um, and so I wanted to center um, her as sort of the first portrait that I drew, also significantly in a, in a retrospective in a place like the AGO, in a topic as big as what, what are we still doing here? Um, I wanted to have a black Muslim woman as the first person that I drew. Um, there's also a portrait of uh, Rodney Deverlis, um, who you see dancing. It's actually from a pose that he did of a, a dance performance here in that same room. Um, Yusra and Rodney and I worked together through Black Lives Matter Toronto, so I really wanted to kind of celebrate them. There's a portrait of Queen Titi Opaleki, who's an activist based out of Winnipeg, who does a lot of work around uh, disability justice and started an organization called Prosthetics for Foreign Donation and has collected 60,000 prosthetics and donated them around the world. And then the last portrait is of Melissa Watson, who's a black and indigenous activist here who does earthworking and um, work around, I guess, black and indigenous solidarity and who had been very involved in both the tent city occupation through Black Lives Matter, but also the occupation of the INAC office um, at St. Clair and Young. So that's who's in the show. And um, that's really what this was all about, was, was sort of a love letter to these activists. Wonderful. That's them, that's Queen Titi. Yeah. This, uh, that oh. image there was just of love letters, and just to say, it came out of doing love letters. Right. I love letters as well, but these are sort of visual love letters. And a lot of people who have drawn portraits of are here, Joshua Vedavelu, Melissa Watson, and others. So thank you all for letting me draw you. Nice. So this image from the installation upstairs, you uh, see the work of four artists. So there's a lot of moments in the show where you're seeing artists through and in relation to the work of other artists. Um, the far wall is a work, uh, new work by Jean Gu. Uh, in front of it is a work by Bonnie Devine. Uh, the video monitors on the right are by Yui Gu, who's Jean Gu's daughter. And then in the foreground is this remarkable piece uh, by Charmaine Lurch. So Charmaine. Hey, thank you. Thank you for inviting me and having me here. Um, 
This sculpture is called, uh, can you hear me? A Mobile Invisible Carriage, and it's the, it's the, it displays the story of Thornton and Lucy Blackburn, and the story was so remarkable that when I first heard it, I felt compelled to create work that, in a way that I could share the story with other people. So I'm just going to read a little bit, and then I'll, I'll um, talk, talk about it a bit more. The Blackburn story is a real, local, and national story. It uncovers a vibrant black history in Toronto. It's about Lucy and Thornton Blackburn, who Lucy and Thornton Blackburn incorporate an aesthetic of the corporeal, memory, erasure, visible and invisible. Their mobility, actualized through the carriage, is both a material object and a conveyance of memory. Um, the work seeks to collapse time and allow us to imagine black contributions and belonging in the present. And so I wrote down, because my memory's not so good, because the, pixel, the visual pixels take up a lot of space in the brain. So really, this carriage, I, I put it on the ground because that's the way that often black history comes to us. Um, uh, from from fragments that we find. And so this glimpse is my way to understand uh, the black subject, um, past and present. So this dig was um, put together in 1985 by the Ontario Black History Society. The TDSB had a new archeological um, dig program and 3,000 children um, were called into the site of the, this this school, which is Inglenook um, Public School down by um, the distillery area, a little bit east of that. And so they were digging. They didn't know what they would find, but they found um, the story of the Blackburns in the ground. And um, Carolyn Smart Frost uh, continued that work and then um, over 13 or 14 years and discovered this huge history. So what came out of it was the story of the Blackburns, and uh, they started the first taxi business in Toronto. They were, um, the colors of the TTC come from their cab, which was yellow and, pale yellow and red. We've now switched, I see, to white, but the original colors were that. Um, I should leave my glasses. They had a daring riverboat escape, uh, part of the first Detroit riots in 1833. Um, they exchanged clothes in jail and came across to Canada. Some of our um, policies relating to extradition of refugees in Canada was built on their case and still stands to get today. Um, Thornton um, worked at Osgood Hall um, as a waiter and met many important people there and then was able to, with um, Lucy, start a very successful taxi business. They made a lot of money and bought many houses in the area of the ward and um, they were abolitionists and for, fought for rights. So this is what a lot of um, people don't know. They fought for rights for blacks in early Toronto in 18, from 1837 till the... Till, and, uh, I guess he lived till 80, 80 years old, something like that, quite old. So he's uh, buried beside George Brown because they worked um, together 
together as abolitionists. And their, their story is almost a movie. There's so much, so rich. Um, and um, I think that these, there are a lot of these stories, we just don't know them. And so for me, it was important to create a piece of work. And so in this work, you can see um, I'm trying to think about past, present, and future and how we can collapse that time and really focus on different moments. So I have, you can't see it in this picture, so there's a very old wheel in the, in the background. This, I, I designed it as a silhouette because I'm trying to think about the spaces, all of the empty spaces, all of the memories. Sometimes we have to imagine them, but when we have a true concrete story like this, it's, it helps us to think of um, ways that that black, blackness, black people, that black community have contributed to this country, to, um, to this locale, you know, this local story. These wheels standing up is to remind us that, you know, they started the first taxi business, so it brings that past story to the present. And also, the shadows are important in this work because I wanted to think about the future. So the shadow of the wheel is outside of the box. And we're always um, compartmentalized and put um, into these areas, city, um, nature, closer to nature maybe in some ways. And so I wanted to move outside of this boxed in area and think about the future um, and, share, and share the story. Thank you. So as we just move through a few other works by Charmaine towards Lisa Hermer's work, um, one of the themes that comes up repeatedly in the show, in the writing, is around these ideas of absence, of erasure, the stories that haven't been told. That's something we really wanted to deal with in this exhibition, uh, uh, coming out of some work that, that Anique did for the Lauren Harris Project last year to really look at these histories and, and, and also the stories get, that get overtold. Um, and I think that's something else we're really conscious of. Uh, within the history of an institution like the AGO, certain stories get told a lot and other stories don't get told. So, Lisa Hermer, do you want me to scroll through these as we go? Or? Yep, yeah, okay, good. Is it on? Okay. I wrote notes because I can't remember words with this many people. Um, <laughs> When Anique and Andrew asked me to do this show, I, like so many of the artists, thought it important to unmoor from a singular moment measured in colonial time. A telescoping sense of time, ushered in by an awareness that we are now within a new geological epoch, most commonly called the Anthropocene, transforms the National Project of Canada into but lines drawn across a planetary position on which brief, though incredibly violent, histories have been enacted. We no longer have the luxury of thinking only at human historical scales. The consequences of the ecological trauma being enacted presently will impact people, if there even are any, tens of thousands of years from now. We are positioned at the precipice of great change. The planet, by which I mean the sum of non-human forces at work here, is pushing back, telling us this carbon-fueled civilization cannot, will not, go on. We have come up against material resistances that forever change our relationship to the world. Human non-livability is a very real possibility, which is not to make light of the millions of species this civilization will take with it. This, whether we like it or not, is an end. 
we, and we of 2017 are condemned to live with this awareness. In Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, philosopher Roy Scranton writes, within a few generations, we will face average temperatures seven degrees Fahrenheit warmer than they are today, rising seas at least three to 10 feet higher, and worldwide shifts in crop belts, growing seasons, and population centers. Unless we stop emitting greenhouse gases wholesale now, humans will, within a couple hundred years, be living in a climate the Earth hasn't seen since the Pliocene, three million years ago, when oceans were 75 feet higher. Once the methane hydrates under the oceans and permafrost begin to melt, we may soon find ourselves living in a hothouse climate closer to that of the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum approximately 56 million years ago when the planet was ice-free and tropical at the poles. We face the imminent collapse of the agricultural shipping and energy networks upon which the global economy depends, a large-scale die-off in the biosphere that's already well underway, and our own possible extinction as a species. If Homo sapiens survive the next millennium, it will be survival in a world unrecognizably different than the one we have known for 200,000 years. The greatest challenge the Anthropocene poses, he continues, is a philosophical one, understanding that this civilization is already dead. The sooner we confront our situation, the sooner we can get down to the difficult task of adapting with moral humility to our new reality. Though Morton paints a near-to-worst-case scenario based on his conviction that we lack the social-political apparatuses needed for wide-scale rapid change, his call to face with moral humility the reality in front of us is one I think very important to this moment. Whatever plays out, our relationship to this planet and future generations is utterly changed. If this reality is ending, even if it ought to be ending, how do we live gracefully, for lack of a better word, through this moment? The task as I see it is how to keep the reality of this moment present, to stay with the trouble of it, neither turning away nor falling into dejection. Climate change, which I use as a shorthand for the violence enacted against other species and non-human entities, as well as human beings, is often associated with dramatic weather events and the disruption of old seasons. This struck me as a good site of investigation. Weather is both urgent and mundane. It is something we experience in common. Intrusions as weather are intrusions into the shared material plane on which life carries out. I want to reclaim the products of atmosphere from a tradition of Canadian landscapes where they are but empty spaces of transcendence for ponderous white men. I want to think about atmospheres and the snow that falls from them as active entangled entities which register human actions and their material presences or lack thereof. Said somewhat differently, snow does not lie, it knows what we've done. The seasons were once a manifestation of planetary stability, so regular as to be banal. The planet, the planet moves around the sun on an elliptical orbit with a tilted axis that creates the seasons, though when thinking at the scale of geological time, neither that tilt nor the orbit is constant. Human-caused ch climate change has additionally introduced forces that are shifting that axis at a rate of about 16 centimeter per year, according to NASA. And yet, the foreseeable future will continue to have something like seasons because of that tilt. But as anyone who has experienced winters a few decades ago and then now can attest, winter is changing. The planetary constants to which we have become accustomed to in the preceding geological era of the Holocene are coming to an end before our eyes. Winter in Canada as long months of accumulating snowfall will shortly be no more, if it isn't already gone. But of course, this kind of loss is slow. 
Climate change at time announces itself in thick, dull edges. So how then do we stop to not just notice, but really register these losses accumulating? There is an irony in that we are aware of climate changes at a planetary scale, and yet that awareness does little to affect the ways we move through the world. I speculate whether if we were to finally attune ourselves to the shifts in weather and season playing out right in front of us and the ecologies we exist in, inside, we would also see the effects of planetary change intruding, but perhaps register them in a different way. Indeed, many of us do have informal but impactful rituals of noticing, especially those for whom climate change has already introduced new precarities. The height of the snowbanks year after year, the amount of snow cover on the mountaintops, and so on. In these works, I want to harness these acts of noticing, shift them into active forms of paying attention together, into practices that allow us to really feel that change playing out. Philosopher Isabel Stengers writes, if there is an art and not just a capacity to paying attention, this is because it is a matter of learning and cultivating, that is to say, making ourselves pay attention. Making in the sense that attention here is not related to that which is defined as a priori worthy of attention, but something that creates an obligation to imagine, to check, to envision consequences that bring into play connections between what we are in the habit of keeping separate. In short, making ourselves pay attention in the sense that attention requires knowing how to resist the temptation to separate what be must be taken into account and what may be neglected. This is why I'm not interested in grand gestures like shipping icebergs across the planet but rather intrusions into the fabric of lived life that let us register what is being lost, a staying still to notice the melting in front of us and to create a space to attend to a loss and room perhaps for something else to begin seeping in. Thank you, Lisa. Michael? Michael Belmore. Hello. Um, I'm a maker of things many different things and they speak as particular language and for me a lot of my work is personal but it's in a way often it's about simple things I'm often making work about finding warmth the glow of a fire um, the swing of a hammer how water flows how water rides across a sandy shore and sort of repeats and repeats and moves down the shoreline. There are these moments where you see things and I see things and I sort of just relish in those small moments. Um, I was thinking of a few things. One was sort of how we all understand the feeling of fire, the warmth of fire on your face on a cool night sitting with friends around a fire and we all can recognize and feel that emotion that that texture that your skin makes the texture that your skin exudes and for me part of what i do is that and for my piece rumble downstairs it is about sort of recognizing that change that idea of what is fire um, what is change and the piece, Rumble, is influenced by um, John Scott's Trans Am Apocalypse. And so I took the hoods from the Trans Am, at, or the image of that, and hammered it out of copper. 
And for me, uh, Anishinaabe person from the Great Lakes region, uh, copper represents blood. It is the blood of our gods. It's the blood of the Thunderbird. It's the god of the Michipishu, the underwater panther. So it speaks of sort of what it is to be water and what it is to be sky and the conflicts that happen between the sky and the water. It's that thunderstorm. It's that thing that is rolling across the open water as you're sitting in your canoe and you realize that you're in this vehicle and that vehicle is all you have. And so when we move forward in this world, when we move forward, we build ourselves a vehicle and we have to trust in that vehicle. And sometimes, you know, it would be really cool if it was a Trans Am. <laughs> So looking at John Scott's Trans Am, I understand growing up in Northern Ontario with that idea of what muscle is, and then to put it with the, also growing up Catholic, looking at, you know, inscribing it with the apocalypse, what that is saying to the authorities in a way. It's sort of a positioning of where we see ourselves. And for me, that piece has always spoken about how we position ourselves in relationship to society or Western society. And I think that was, for me, I wanted to acknowledge that and to place that in a way that is about talking about what, what non-Native people call mythology and I call stories from my family. Uh, the history of the Thunderbird, the history of the water links, and how they speak of the past, but also speak of the future, and speak of those moments when you're in a canoe and you press on the side and you, your body all of a sudden freaks out and is in panic mode, in survival mode, and you're left with yourself because you're in a canoe in cold, wet water. So you learn to rely on yourself. And so that's what the work is about. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you, um, everyone, for uh, speaking to us a bit about the work that's in the show right now. So the impetus behind creating um, Every Now and Then started with the conversation, or sort of this year that was uh, placed upon us, This. Uh, Canada 150 moments that we've been calling it. Um, and so a lot of the work that is in the show right now is sort of talking about different types of tensions. So some are talking about the tension between human, non-human. Some are talking about the tension between histories being buried, histories being revealed, um, land, um, the ways that we sort of work through the world. And so my question to you all is thinking about uh, the ideas of Canada, thinking about the ideas of recognizing um, this 150th, um, however you call it, of Canada, and then placing that within this context of um, global tensions, so economic tensions, political tensions, environmental tensions. How do you sort of make sense of the work that you've produced, and, um, and what, is, what do you feel it's sort of saying within this context? Anyone? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I would say that it's almost, well, I guess first 150 would be, <sighs> that's pretty much all I have to say about 150. 
Um, land, land has been here for a very long time and it will continue to be here. And yes, it does migrate and we do migrate it off this island at an interesting rate. Um, looking at those meteorites, we you know, add to this continent, but we take away from this continent more. And really it doesn't, most of it doesn't go anywhere, it just sort of changes. And um, I think for me that's an interesting thing. And I just got myself totally confused. <laughs> what do you think your work is saying? Um, my work is, what is it saying within that? I think that it's almost in a way a, a call of recognizing both, you know, that idea of the possibility of change, about the possibility of looking at ancient past, but also looking at, you know, current history. So looking at what, you know, what was done in the 80s, what was done in the 70s, what was done in the 60s, things that were in our time. And I think one of the things that we often talk about um, when we measure time is in our lifetime, mm -hmm. in our lifetime. In our lifetime, our lifetimes are really short. Uh, we, you know, our significance on this planet is really short. And so it's really important to recognize that. So as far as 150 goes, I, a friend of mine pointed out that Star Trek is celebrating its 50th year anniversary. So it's one third of Canada. And so <laughs> that's a perspective we have to understand. Sorry. I have a story about that, but I'll wait for others to respond. Yeah, um, you know, for me, this, uh, this is a very complex uh, moment. Um, and the sort of direction and leadership that I've taken has been from, from activists who are already doing the work, who are already working on um, resurgence projects, who are already working on um, projects to sort of support the livelihood of, uh, of, our, of my communities. And so this moment right now feels like there's an attention on what is happening in this current place. And I think that this was an opportunity to have a broader conversation about two things. One, um, there's this, a, a scholar who used to be uh, based out of Toronto who's now in, in Atlanta named Tiffany Lathebo King, who writes about the fungibility of black bodies. And she talks about the ways that for um, black people with a genealogy like mine, my, my father's family is from slave labor, like they were from, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and they, they lived on slave labor camps uh, generations back, that there was a way that our bodies were used interchangeably as if we were seeds, and that is the definition of fungibility. You can plant a whole bunch of um, millet, and if some of it grows and some of it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter because you can just plant more. And unfortunately, our bodies were used as such. Our bodies were used interchangeably like seeds as part of both the colonial project um, and sort of the agricultural project of supporting um, colonizers who were coming here, who were sending money back through the cottonocracy to England and to Manchester, but also um, as an active part of terraforming and transforming this landscape in order to dominate indigenous people. So to come to an exhibition that is sort of trying to grapple with what it means to be here now, I chose to, um, to draw all portraits of black people, 
um, and of black people who have complicated histories here and who also are facing um, a moment of erasure. I mean, like the, the m amount of black death that we've seen in the last 500 years, five years, um, has been profound. And when you look at who it is who's, who's being killed repeatedly by the police, it's almost always black people who also have other intersections of difference. So black mad people or black disabled people. And so, you know, in this portrait series, you know, three of the four people have an experience of disability. You know, that they, they, that they are people who are doing um, direct action work that has resulted in, in, in death threats, both, you know, physical death threats, but also online and cyberbullying. So just thinking about what it means to celebrate black lives in this current moment when, you know, black lives are being erased, um, when black art spaces are being erased. I mean, when you look at what happened with Blank Canvas on New Year's Eve here, where the, you know, the owner of a, a gallery who didn't have the right special events permit was you know, attacked by the police and tasered in the, at, at an art show opening because of not having a special event permit, absolutely rooted in anti-black racism. You know, and then also thinking about this moment when there are so still so few opportunities for black Canadian artists to show in black Canadian, to show in Canadian art institutions. Like that there was just this rapid kind of erasure of all of our lives. And so trying to reinsert um, us into this narrative while also, you know, thinking through what it means to be in solidarity with indigenous resurgence and with indigenous people resisting um, the ongoing occupation of this land, this largely unceded land. So. Remain, please. Sir. Thoughts? Yeah. So I'm just thinking about your question, and and you mention attention, and I, you know, I, I when I think of tension, I think of attention. This moment calls our attention, and for me, that makes me think about listening to all of the voices that are around us, but also attention in some of the things that that you just spoke about, how our bodies, and I'm speaking specifically as a black woman, how our bodies are understood in this space. We're always considered newcomers, and that's why it's important for me to bring a story like the Blackburns forward, because it connects to, so, to everyone here, if you are an immigrant. And so this tension of how our bodies are perceived and how we move through space is really, um, is an important part of my work. So some of the ones that you scrolled through before, can you show those? I'm not sure if you can go back, but maybe not. Okay, all right, we're on to the scroll part. But um, I, I, um, a lot of my work takes up the landscape in many different ways. I'm accidentally wearing my bee top, but I work a lot with wire sculpture bees to talk about the wild bees in the environment. And for me, I use them as an, I'm not use them, but they are an analogy for how black bodies are perceived in the way that, you know, a bee, when it, it's in its environment in the garden, it might be okay, but once it comes, it's seen as out of place inside or somewhere else, all of a sudden it becomes this, this scary, horrible thing and, you know, you want to kill it. And so for me, working with bees, just working... Um, on that topic makes me start to think about how black bodies are perceived and understood. Also, the very materials I work with, I work with a, a fine woven wire, and it 
the way that I use the wire show um, tends to make me think about the visible and invisible because you can see through the wire. And so how I am made often invisible in many spaces or hyper visible, like a bee if I'm stepping into the wrong neighborhood or the wrong space, I'm hyper visible. But mostly as a small black woman, I, I am invisible. And I did speak before about how I've tried to um, reimagine it, because I'm always thinking of how I will be in the future and to, you know, make it kind of like my superpower. I'm still working on that. <laughs> Thank you. Did you want to switch? No um, pressure. Okay. I'll just be super quick. Um, I guess two things. I think... Um, like Cyrus said, it's an opportunity. So I think if we've created this marker in time, there's a question of then how do we use that? And maybe celebration isn't the only possibility of... Um, oh, sorry, sorry. Um, yeah, maybe celebration isn't the only way we can acknowledge a moment, that there's maybe other um, modes of thinking um, very honestly about where we're at and what those 150 years entails. Um, I think also, I was sort of thinking 150 years in the future, how very different um, our lives are going to be. And if those people were looking back at us now, like, what would we do now to, for them? Um, or how will our gestures read to them? And um, that. Um. You'll see, um, there's a work at the beginning of the exhibition by Meryl McMaster uh, called um, The Edge of a Moment. And then there's another work in the show uh, called Time's Gravity. And I think about with what Lisa was just saying about the sense of now and into the future. Uh, Meryl, her quote for the show is about, you know, um, moving with her ancestors like into the future. The sense of, again, disrupting time that the ancestors are both in the past waiting in the future and with us here now. Um, but also that piece that opens the, at the beginning that sits behind Michael's um, uh, about the edge of a moment, that, that we are the sense of like on the edge of something quite, um, quite dramatic, some kind of sense of change. Uh, Lisa's work, your work deals with that. I think everybody's work in certain ways deal with this break or this moment. Um, I'm going to jump a little bit because of time to the third question that was your question, but I'm going to ask the question, which if that's okay, um, which was... Um, because we'll come back to the other, but this was, I think, important to ask, which is, um, what can a show like this do in this moment? So thinking about the whole exhibition, um, but uh, also what does the show potentially mean within, within an institution, and particularly this institution at this time? So, so what can this do? What, what is the responsibility? What is, the, what is this moment about? And I think that would be a good thing to talk about. Well, I have to say, I, you know, a show like this that has so many different artists, um, you know, it's just got such a huge footprint in terms of the number of people who have been involved. You know, I've been uh, going to shows at the AGO since I was really little. My mom is an artist, um, and so she, she all, often took us here, and, and I, I, I can't stress enough how how few times I've been to any major institution and seen a show of mostly artists of color. Like, that just doesn't happen. Yeah. So when you think about um, places like the National Gallery of Canada, places like the AGO, you know, that have 
also a very long history, 1901, right? Like, it's, a, it's a long time ago. Um, and, and the sort of the his, the exhibition record in terms of contemporary offerings, you know, there have been so few gatherings um, of, of, a, of, a, of a survey like this that really shows the diversity of Ontario. I mean, institutions should be doing better and being better, and we shouldn't be at a place in 2017 where it's so rare, but it is. And so walking through the exhibition, seeing so many artists of color, so many indigenous artists together, you know, it's, it's just so refreshing. And I think it also helps us, it's a very sophisticated conversation. So the work, you know, with the Raptors jerseys turning into ball gowns, you know, the work, that brilliant work by Sister Co-Resister, you know, who's home on native land, you know, all of the, the work that we've discussed today, very political, very, very political work that, that also, you know, this sort of activist aesthetic is not something that's widely embraced yet. Um, and I think it's really beautiful. So I, I just, uh, for me as an artist and as still maybe that little kid who was being dragged around to all of these exhibitions, it's still so exciting to me to be, uh, to be amongst so many other artists of color because you know, we still are in a situation where there are so few opportunities for particularly black artists, but, but, but also artists of color to show in Canadian institutions. So um, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I just want to add to the to what Andrew had said with the question. That question really comes from us spending a lot of time thinking about how we can create a show that is um, engaged, not that is not trying to sidestep a very political conversation, but also at the same time doesn't allow for the AGO to declare a type of innocence and a type of um, politicized. Um, perspective as well. So we wanted to ensure that we created a platform for the artists who are already seeing these, these who have already been thinking about it, who have already been seeing these um, stories and messages to, to say that and to allow the AGO to be a place that can be self-reflexive and not, uh, as I said, declaring a type of innocence and a type of co-option of, um, of the stories and of the work that artists in the show are producing. I just like, I cannot stress enough like to have Camille Turner's work of the wanted ad in Young and Dundas, like at a time, right? Like at a time when we are like, you know, black people are still being hunted. Like we are being hunted. That there's no other way to describe the things that have happened. Amla said highly in you know, January 2nd of this year was killed. Like there's just so, you know, the Andrew Loku inquest just finished 21 seconds, 21 seconds from meeting him to shooting him. So to have that, you know, seven stories high in the middle of Young and Dundas, like that is not an insignificant moment for Toronto, for this entire place, nonetheless for the AGO. Okay. Uh, for those of you not aware, the, the work that Cyrus is referring to, you'll see one of the images at the beginning of the show by Camille Turner and Kamal Purbe. It's from the Wanted series. So one of the 10 images is now on the, on the big screen at Dundas Square. Um, so it went live on Monday. It's up all summer. So anytime you go there, you'll see it. That's yeah, attached to it as well. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So there's an artist book attached to it as well. If yeah. you want to see all ten images together. So other thoughts from folks about about the exhibition in this moment, right? What it means here. We can also ask other the questions. possibilities and presents for the AGO. Um, I just want to say it's really interesting because the space offers context between the artists. So yeah, yeah, I'm you know good for the AGO, 
but for me, what's yeah. really impressive is that I get to show with these artists who I never get to show with. And that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. So we get to build a voice in a way that we are talking to each other, and that often doesn't happen. Um, I get put into a lot of native exhibitions yeah. for some reason. Yeah. So I want to be clear. The question isn't framed to say, like, let's all praise the AGO at this moment. It's more uh, about what I, happens I, when a show yeah. Yeah, happens yeah. within a yeah. space like this. But I'm really excited yeah. about the context that my work gets to communicate with work that it usually does not get to communicate with. So we actually, this is the larger community, and the exhibition recognizes the larger community and actually puts us together the way we put ourselves together outside right. of this space. Right. So it's yeah. a good point. Right. Um, following on that, I think the messiness you speak about is really important. I think it's really easy to take like one issue and cut it off from everything else and like tidy it up and make a really neat statement that you know, lets institutions off the hook. And I think there's all these like really beautiful intersections of ideas that don't often get put in the same space. And these questions come up about like, okay, these things are actually deeply entangled um, and coming out of some of the same places, just playing out in different modes. Um, and I think that makes it really real. I'm thinking of, um how I feel when I walk through the exhibition and there's so many beautiful, horrible moments. Like each work has real beauty and real horror in, in, involved in the piece. And, I'm, and I think this tension needs to happen. And I'm just hoping that the AGO will allow for these tensions, these moments to continue. So this isn't just a, a one-of show um, and that or even moment, so that these moments will, AGO and other institutions might look for these beautiful, horrible things and, and find a way to move them out into the broader community. So, um, one of the big questions that Andrew and I have always um, sort of raised when we were looking, when we first started the show and looking at this map of all the artists' work on the wall, we kept on asking the question, what's missing? So, and this is an important question because that's a question that almost becomes political in many spaces that don't ask it enough and that maintain a, um, a single narrative that, as we know, becomes really, um, can become very damaging to those who are erased or invisibilized in that. So the question, we've been asking is what's missing and trying to understand what the implications are of, are of that potential erasure. And so this is a difficult question perhaps for the artist, but I'm throwing it back to you and asking within the relationships that's in the show, within the spaces that, uh, that we've created with artists that are in conversation, what potentially is missing? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, you know, there, I mean, I'm an artist with disabilities and I, you know, certainly the, if you knew the backstory of the people in the portraits, you would understand that disability was present. But, you know, perhaps it's more subtle, mm -hmm. I think. So maybe, I think what we've seen a lot in the last 10 years was a real, um, like, 
tireless work by disabled people and activists to push for disability justice. And I think that the conversation about disability, madness, um, and deaf culture is like a vital conversation for any art institution uh, to have in this current moment. And I think that um, if anything, we all, all exhibitions could use more um, conversations about disability or more artists who are making work, who have a lived experience of disability, just because uh, the show will be better. <laughs> the work will be better, it'll just be more interesting, it'll be more reflective of human life, right? So I think that um, I, I've been through the exhibition a couple of times and it's possible that there's a lot of disability discussed and it's more, it's subtle, similar to my work. But if, if pressed, I would say that would be something that we could always have more front and center. I'm just going to say more space. We need more space <laughs> yeah. to, to do our work. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I know a, many of the artists have so much to say. Yeah. And I like that our work is in conversation with each other. But I always feel like, ah, oh, I need more space. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe two floors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just to add, I, th I think also that question is about um, what's missing in terms of how we're speaking about Canada, quite broadly. I know, but we need more space to say that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I guess just with disability, I mean, that's absolutely about Canada. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit hard, because I really love the show and being in it, but I, th I think I'm the only Latin artist in the show. Oh, yeah. Uh, anyways, I, I feel a bit inadequate to um, hold that. Yeah. And so maybe... Oh, yeah, I'm, I just asked Andrew. I think I'm the only artist with a Latin background in the show. And um, I just, I don't feel entirely adequate to, like, hold that. Um, so maybe that could yeah. be something more. Good point. But I also really love the show. <laughs> and I acknowledge before I can say, it is a tough question like for artists to sit in an institution and critique it but I mean that's what Anik and I have tried to create for the sh with the show and for ourselves in this to have to encourage that within the institution for ourselves as well to be able to stand up and be accountable and, and learn and we learn from that so uh, Michael what are you thinking? Um, I was just thinking about um it's one of those things that I don't actually know what the answer is, but that idea of the small town, that idea oh. of, you know, uh, what it is to be rural isn't in the show. So yeah. as far as what Ontario is, or even the National Gallery, or any big museum, that idea, because intrinsically, because it's in this city, mm -hmm. it is urban. Yeah. And it always falls into that situation. Yeah. And even as a person who's grown up in Northern Ontario, my work becomes a larger focus and talks about larger issues, which then become universal, which then become more about what is urban and not so much about what is the everyday or not, you know, uh, the experience of being rural. Yeah, it's interesting when you say we're, I think of three people in the show. I always think of like Seth, which might surprise, like with the piece in the show Dominion, but I know so much of Seth's work comes out of a small town and then building this large city out of the small town. 
I certainly think of like um, Emily Atkins, whose work is grounded in uh, a rural prairie experience, and that influences the imagery. Um, but I think the strongest of all is are the works by Jean Gu and Yui Gu. But I think again, it's very easy to go not think of them as about rural, or the, because it is really about the the sort of industrial intensity of the migrant worker experience. So, yeah, no, it's a really strong point about that aspect. Yeah. I don't have any answers for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> I had a, one other question um, that I sort of briefed you on before about time. So, um, as Andrew said, as you've all said, we spend a lot of time thinking about time and different ways that we can understand it. So, Cyrus, your work looks a lot of the contemporary moment and how it's informed by the past. And Charmaine, you're looking at very deeply looking at the past and the ways in which it informs the future. And then Lisa, you're looking at the ways that we can understand time as projecting into the future. And Michael, you're looking about time through the ideas of creation stories and family relationships. And so all these, and, and you're four of the 35 different artist projects, and all of the, the different projects are looking at time in a slightly different, nuanced way, including the archaeological objects that are brought into the show as well. So my question is, what sort of possibilities, or what can we learn, perhaps, um, about time and about Canada when we bring these different ways of understanding it into the same space? Yeah. <laughs> Michael's eyebrows, like, they went, whoa. That was like, the, Michael's eyebrows went way up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Lisa. Do I have to start? Okay. Yep. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think that's one of the most beautiful things about the exhibition that I really love is this, these time scales that expand and contract and intersect. I think one of the biggest challenges before us is to figure out how those scales of time intersect with live life and how that changes how we move through the world. Um, but I think it also creates openings. Um, I'm sort of surprised, I think, when I finally saw the show how much hope it feels like there is somewhere in it. Like like coming from a really real place of um, these possibilities that get opened up when all these time scales start to like come across each other. Hopefully that makes sense. I don't know what it is. Uh, when I do the port ask people to do their portrait, I interview them and I make an audio recording of them and then I, and then I photograph them while they're talking and I ask them about um, their experience of activism and then I ask them about time travel, and I asked them if they could go to any point in the past, present, or future, to any place in the multiverse, and get involved in a social movement, what would they get involved in? And then I asked them what it feels like the very moment that they realize that they're falling in love. And then their face changes, and then I take a bunch of photographs. <laughs> and then I listen to it while I'm drawing them. So I'm fascinated by, by this idea of, um, of, of them as, as agents that move through time. And, and a lot of people actually talk about wanting to just be in the moment that they're currently in. And I'm like, why, you wouldn't want to go to the future? I would totally want to go to the future if somebody was asking me. Um, but they, you know, they sort of... <laughs> would you like to go to the future, son? I really would. But this idea of, of, um, of, their, of their organizing, of, uh, of it being sort of inside and outside of time, and. There's um, a black scholar named Michelle Wright who wrote a book called The Physics of Blackness that really talks about the movement and the sort of physics of, of black bodies throughout time and space. And I think that um, 
Yeah, I was, I was really thinking about that in relation to this exhibition and then being able to sort of move through it, it, it has this way of making you really realize that you are an infinitesimal speck in a larger scheme that is much larger than all of us. Like looking at the meteorite, I don't know if I'm saying it right. Yeah. The spring form. Spring water. Spring, spring water, water meteorite. Spring form is a pan. Spring water meteorite, <laughs> looking, yeah. at, looking at that object and realizing my, you know, my sense of time being, you know, totally different. Um, and just even just some of the references that other people have made in their works, you know, that, that I remember just because it's my generation, you know, that other people might not. There's the, you know, the, the paintings, um, oh, I'm going to forget the artist's name, who, did, who just learned to paint very recently. Oh, Rosalie Fable. Exactly, yeah. you know, where, you know, her portraits of, of old family photographs seem familiar. They're not portraits of my family, but they seem familiar because they're from a moment in time that that is familiar of sort of the, the way that you get kind of posed on Christmas morning or whatever. So I've really enjoyed the ways that time has kind of played through this and it's helped me to think about my work and my, yeah, the smallness of myself in this large multiverse. And also I'm a PhD in environmental studies. And so looking at the, the water melting, like there's, it just brings a sense of urgency. I think one of the things about time is that it expands and contracts and it can take away our sense of urgency in moments when we're just wanting to watch TV with all the lights on and forget about the fact that the planet's dying. You know, but in these, in these moments, we're like, oh, actually, this is an urgent. All of these topics, all of these issues are eminent and urgent. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my work takes up the notion of time um, by thinking about flux and specifically the black body in flux, how we move back and forth, invisible, visible, and um, always changing. And it, thinking about time makes me think about Octavia Butler. She's um, a science fiction writer and how she takes up the notion of time and her books. She writes about black bodies on the plantation, but brings you to the present with body, with parts being stuck in walls and coming through. And a lot of my work in Wire um, mm. takes up that notion of time. Some of it, um, uh, well, w one story that I'm still working on is Shakespeare's The Tempest and um, looking at the black female figure that is Sycorus in the Tempest and how she's spoken about, but you never get to see her. In, in the Tempest, Sycorax, the mother of Caliban, is spoken as the witch of the vile race. And, it, and um, I try to think of, for me, while scholars have spoken about that particular piece and Sycorax as uh, coming from the island, so I'm always thinking of the island, Turtle Island, and the island that Sycorax and Prospero was on, and bringing that kind of tale, well-known tale, into the future in, in my work and, and then moving it by thinking about Octavia Butler's words, everything you see is change. And pretty, I'm not, it's not a completely perfect quote, but God is change, right? And I'm always thinking of flux is ever-changing and looking for how black bodies will, um, will move through time. And, and I guess in the words of um, Richard Eiten, I'm looking for a black fantastic in the future, really, and so we have to change to get to that point. Um, I guess I want to talk about, I just say that the piece that I have on the floor with the 
with the work club is very much um, uh, the, the copper piece on the bottom is natural copper and it's found on the south shore of Lake Superior and it's copper that was once liquid that has now found itself on the surface of the earth and then was picked up and dragged by a glacier and then deposited on the south shore of Lake Superior and was buried into the ground until somebody picked it up and then I happened to travel through the south shore of Lake Superior, walked into a convenience store that also sold really good muffins. And <laughs> it was sitting there, and at a price, I bought it, then crossed the border, and the person asked me, do you have anything to declare? And I said, I have copper, natural copper, from the south shore of Lake Superior. And he goes, so can we just say it's household goods? And I said, yes. <laughs> And he said, that'll be $22. And so it was sort of the idea of measuring what value is in a material. The material that I used for the hood is a manufactured material which came from Brazil, which was mined, refined, processed, brought to Pittsburgh, then brought to here, to Toronto, that I then brought to Ottawa, that I then took a hammer to and started hammering, and with a jigsaw, I informed that piece of material um, which came from the earth, but traveled in a different journey, traveled at a different time. And so for me, that's a lot of what my work is about, and sort of, I also work with stone, and so working with materials that have a long history, and using what their history is, using their voice. So using the material's voice for me is important, and often I work with things that are very old. So. I'm sure I'm just not registering on them yet, but hopefully I hope to inform. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. Um, I, can, I can often go like deep down into these sort of poetic plays with things when I'm writing. And, and one of the things that was really great and wonderful about working with Anique and learning from Anique was it was, it's, I became very obsessed with the spring, the meteorite and its age and how it traveled here and that it arrives and that it's found. Um, so it's, it can be very easy, it, it could have become very easy in thinking about this Canada 150 moment to just posit that as like, oh, there's this 150, but it's all deep time in this pool and it's, you know, we're just swimming in this. And the yeah. thing that Anique always brought me back to this reminder of was, but at the same time, there are these specific moments in time where things happen and we can't lose sight of those things happening in that dialogue of the bigger pool. So there is actually a second object which I always think about in relation to that, which is there's the spring water meteorite fragment, but there's also something called the shatter cone. And shatter cone, which you'll see upstairs, is this piece of rock that kind of looks like frozen chocolate. It's a frozen splatter. Um, I don't know, I like, <laughs> you don't see the chocolate, I see the chocolate, yeah. But it's, what it is is when 1.8 billion years ago when a meteorite hit, um, based where Sudbury is, right? It formed what's known as an astrobleem or an impact crater, and it liquefied and splattered the ground, and then the ground solidified. And so that object, and to me, is always comes back to this notion of unique, that there are these, within all of this time, there are these specific moments and traces of like a very sort of specific thing happening. And I think that's a bit rambly, but I think with this project, as it's moved along, there's always been this, kind of call and response to this, or this echoing out 
into like where, where am I, where I looking back forward across time, and then grounding in these very particular moments of, you know, of um, the arrival of particular bodies into this space, um, the awareness that the Blackburns, right, were people who came here and their life had an impact or um, um, specific moments in time that have had direct, there's a video in, that's embedded within Barry Ace's um, uh, bandolier bags. Um, so it's a, it's a document of a, of a community on Manitoulin of Anishinaabe performing and they're performing for a group of white men, uh, probably government officials. Um, the thing that's really important about the video and why we also show it as a standalone with, a, with description is it happens at a particular date and time. It happens in 1925. And that's a moment you have to understand because in 1925 it was illegal for indigenous people to dance both on and off reserve. So the fact that they are performing this dance at that moment is quite profound if you understand that specific spot in time. And I think those are the kind of conversations that we try to, try to really tap into in this, hopefully successfully. So we have an opportunity for questions uh, from the floor. Uh, Kathleen is here with a microphone. Uh, Annie's here with a microphone. I have a microphone too. Um, uh, but yeah, please, a few questions would be great. And as we said, the exhibition remains open upstairs till nine o'clock and we'll make our way up there after and happy to talk to people in the space. So questions, please. If you have one, please use a microphone. Hello, I'm super happy to be here. Question, so Canada, 150 years, borders drawn by people who decided that the borders were whatever they were. How did you all consider the borders and the ways that they changed and moved over time in your curation of the exhibition and also in your creation of art as you were thinking about it? The second question. And, uh, and also the artist. Oh, the artist. Okay. Sure. Should I go first? Yeah, I think part of the, part of the plan, I, I remember very early on in the project, uh, when it was still mulling, and I, I still have the PowerPoint on my computer. That um, sounds very like I'm an old person saying things like my computer and PowerPoint, like I think everybody, everybody knows where I fit in the flow of time. Um, but I actually started by looking at images of, like I started by looking at a map of Canada and when it was founded in 1867 and what it looked like. And of course it doesn't look anything like it does today. It's actually like quite a small territory. It's sort of like um, what was then uh, Upper Canada and Lower Canada, so this wedge of land, there's the Great Lakes along the St. Lawrence, two maritime provinces, and that was it. So that started this, and then I just started to go deeper and deeper in maps and how this whole place has been like defined and shaped. Um, and that actually is what took way back into looking at aerial images from space and impact craters. And so this idea that I was reading from the intro about this is a space that's always been pulled apart and stuck back together was important. And so then in looking at the artists and the work that artists were making that we wanted to, to feature in the exhibition, there was a real attention um, in a lot of places to engaging with artists whose work went beyond those traditional sense of a Canadian borders or boundaries in time. Um, so I think that was, that was a really important step curatorially in thinking about, well, there were a particular group of people who set the parameters of what is considered officially Canada today, but there were an awful lot of other narratives going on um, that saw this place very differently, and one can see that through, through other species or geology or how people move, and that for many people, the, 
the, the border, for many people the borders are fluid and for many people the borders are rigid. Um, so I think in the choice of artists and the writing and who we invited to write was very much aware of, uh, even as it appears on, on the map today, it's this notion of how far does Canada extend or exist or physically is, can't be captured by that simple map outline, right? Does that make sense, I think? Yeah. So over to others. Yeah. Um, I would just say that mine is sort of, as far as boundary borders go, it is where you stand, which is the land. And for me, what the boundaries are, are is the air and is the water. Right. And it's like, those are the two places where we don't stand. And, and, and for me, that's sort of the history that's there and it was there in the past. And it's a shared history for my grandparents and for myself and for my nieces and nephews. And it's that edge of the water which defines us. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's in my work. So it's always, my work always comes back to that shoreline. Right. And for me, Superior, Lake Superior, the big water, that's sort of where I always get drawn back to, which is home. Right. So boundary is really home and away from home. Anyone else? Hello. I guess similarly, because um, I started thinking about whether and to experience whether you really just have to stand on a spot on the planet. Um, and so also thinking about these sort of like planetary changes and how they intersect in everyday lives is very much about um, actually just a point on the planet. So, you know, not speaking generally, but actually, okay, winter is happening here because there's a tilt and the planet is right here relative to the sun. Um, I think that's how I thought about place. All of the people that I did portraits of are here um, and or were working or, or doing direct action or involved in some sort of organizing in this area of Toronto, but they all had uh, a diaspora experience, either being born in the States or being born in Sudan or being born in Haiti or being born in Nigeria. And then my own... Um, experience of, uh, you know, my mom's family is from the UK, my dad's family is from the South, and I have often felt uh, from North America, but not necessarily specifically from Canada. And so the, yeah, the thinking about the sort of diaspora um, and the borderlessness, the nationlessness of diaspora um, was part of it. And then also, you know, that of course activisms um, expand and stretch across well, I guess time and space, but the sort of networks of activists, um, you know, there's like global networks of activists and sort of thinking about how everybody has been called to respond to address the ongoing violences and colonialism here um, and how that sort of in particular impacted indigenous women um, and indigenous trans women. So th thinking about how those are like a, a not specific to a place, those are fights that we're all fighting. I'm thinking of uh, borders and mapping, and for me that brings up ideas of belonging, who belongs where, how we are compartmentalized in our different areas, but also with mapping our bodies. It happens all over the world, and, um, and, and it, we need to think of how we are taking up space, um, what do the borders mean? I mean 
they aren't so organic for people whose bodies are not, they're actually walls. And so, you know, I have to start to think about how we navigate those walls, we jump over, go through, and, and um, when I begin to think of how to do that, it's really in community, in communities like these, in the working with these artists. Other questions? Yeah. This is not my question, but um, <laughs> Michael spoke about the conversations with other artists. Uh, which dialogues most challenged you um, and embraced you? So, the, did everybody hear that? So, the I'm going to get it slight. I'll paraphrase, but uh, reference to the comment Michael said about dialogues between artists. So, the question about which were there were there conversations that really inspired you or moved you or that really struck you, right? the opportunities for dialogue that happened in the show with other artists? Um, it's still too early. I need to go through and really look at the work. But just going through the first few times, wow, just looking at the work, other people, other artists' work of this nature helps me to think through, through their work, helps me to think through things in my work and just to look at the connection. So, even at that early stage, and it's, uh, it's full. It's a lot of thinking, so it's gonna take time. I would say for me, um, I'm still uh, Ruth's work, and that tarp, and the stitching. Ruth Cuthand. Ruth Head, yeah, Ruth Cuthand's work. That stitching on the tarp, and that, you know, and I, I remember walking in there and looking at that tarp, and I was like, what color is that blue? And I was like, it came back to me that it was tarp blue. And it's because that's, that's the color we know. And then looking at that and just understanding like what that means like as far as the history of that material. And so I was really interested in how she used materials to speak. So the idea of that color for me was really interesting with the, everything else that was going on. So I'm enthralled with that. I'm still, yeah. Cyrus? Yeah, I think it was, it's, you know, it was amazing when we were installing to sort of get to see what everybody had made because we knew that we had all been kind of called to make things. And, um, but I, yeah, I, I had a long uh, set of conversations with, with uh, Alexa Hatanaka you know, and Patrick about, um, about their work with the, with the two marble slabs and there was the, the Lauren Harris painting that's right, and and the, the the 3D models of the snowmobiles, and just really, I was so moved by their work. We work in similar ways often with community, um, and just sort of, I just was really blown away by the way that they showed the process of their work, right. uh, of their work with community in the actual artwork. That totally blew me away. And and then you know, Myung um, Sun Kim, who has the the ceramic works, um, we we both were talking. Uh, throughout the process of creation about um, about death, about memorial, about memory, about exile. Um, and it, you know, sort of the questions and the things that she was thinking about mm -hmm. really pushed me to think further when I was doing my drawings. So I'm very grateful to all of them. Mm -hmm. Lisa? Um, 
Yeah, I would say Cyrus's work. I think um, both kind of ecological crisis and the Black Lives Matter, they both feel so incredibly urgent. Um, and they often like get spoken about separately. But they, you know, there's so many entanglements there. So I really love that those two projects are in the same space. <laughs> and then also Ruth Cutland and um, Ed Peen and Marilyn's uh, work, again, showing um, these issues starting to intersect and land in very specific places with very real consequences um, playing out. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have another question? Or? Can I just say one thing really sure. quickly? Sure, yeah. I, when I came to install, the day that I came in, you were like, oh, let's just take a look around. And like, as a trans person, like the first piece that I saw was the um, basketball dresses. Oh, and there was like this whole gender variant moment. And like, that was pretty great. That never happened. <laughs> that was wonderful. I was like, Good. oh, I'm yeah. home. Good. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, there was a moment, I'll just be quick. There was a nice moment early on in the project where artists would come in to our office and you can, and there are all these pictures on the wall. And it was, yeah, at that point it was just still, we hadn't moved the pictures into the exhibition. We just had all of these artists we knew we wanted to work with. And Lisa Myers came in one day and like, we hadn't, it didn't even have to, didn't start telling the story yet. She just walked in and went, okay, uh, yeah, I want to be part of this. So that was, it's nice when that, that feeling of being part of something, she didn't really know what it was about yet, but she knew the direction from the dialogue, the mix of artists that had come together. So um, we have a question here. Oh, comment, sure. Okay, just wait for the mic, and this is going to be our last comment. Yeah, and then I want to just uh, acknowledge a couple things before everybody heads up. Yeah. Uh, I've been uh, physically challenged in living in Toronto for more than 40 years. Uh, why there are so few physically challenged artists participating is that if you're on ODSP and you get an arts grant, they take it out of your oh, food money. Yeah. I'm not finished. Oh, yeah, no, no. <laughs> When you, get to six, when you get to 65, they cut you off of ODSP. That means you lose your glasses, your hearing aids, and your dental. If you go for an arts grant, it affects your guaranteed income supplement. That's why you haven't got many white male artists participating, because if they do participate, they are not only looked down upon for being white, male, but they are financially and physically punished. When you get to 65, they're gonna cut you off of ODSP. That means, you know, I've well, been I, just, an I understand for, the point about dealing with disability, but not the, the white male side of it. Yeah, so. Um, I wanna thank everybody for coming out. I wanna thank the artists. Uh, for comments this evening. I wanna, I'm just conscious the show is still open this evening for people to go up and the artists are here. It's a chance for people to speak to the artists. Um, I want to acknowledge, though, I, I wanted to do this at the opening, but we didn't have a lot of time. So it's always been important for me working on exhibitions on my own or collaboratively to, to, to be sure that everybody gets over the finish line, that the artists you engage as much as is possible, and it's challenging in a big group show like this to, to, to get there. Um, but one artist uh, who was a dear friend and close, uh, who didn't make it to the finish line with us was Tim Pitsilak. And I want to honor and acknowledge Tim uh, this evening. Uh, Tim passed away really suddenly at Christmas. He was five years younger than me. He was a great hunter. He lived in Cape Dorset. Um, when I was up in Dorset in the fall, we all talked about he was the one, 
He was the artist in the community that none of us worried about. Um, this, had just, uh, this was just after uh, Annie Pudigook passed away. Uh, Tim shouldn't have died. Tim, uh, and this, his passing says a lot about this moment and this moment in this country. Tim was 47. He was healthy. He was a great hunter. He was a father. He was a grandfather. He was a great husband, great supporter in his community. He had pneumonia. He died of pneumonia. And he died of pneumonia because there isn't proper service in the community. There isn't medical service. There's like a nursing station. He died because the helicopter from Iqaluit went to the wrong place. And by the time it went back to refuel and got there, Tim passed away. So I'm honored that we were able to work with Tim. I'm honored that his work begins the exhibition when you come in. Uh, but I'm also deeply sad that, um, that not all the artists made it to the finish line, though I know Tim made it with us in spirit. So uh, just want to say thank everybody again for this evening um, and I look forward to seeing people upstairs. And thank you all again for tonight. It was really informative. <laughs>